Hello, Arie. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Arie Cohen-Wade. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be a fun conversation. Because uh, you, I mean, first of all, let's lead with the big news. You have a show that was birthed on Blogging Heads TV called Culturally Determined. Correct. And it is about to get its own YouTube channel. Yes. Uh, you're, you've earned your wings. Now, you will still be in the, in the Blogging Heads TV uh, podcast feed and on the Blogging Heads site. But as a YouTube matter, you're going to have your own channel. The only, the only other person who's done this is the estimable Glenn Lowry. So you're now in a pretty impressive company. He just did it a couple of weeks ago. He's got his own channel. He also is still in the, in the Blogging Heads feed and on the site. Right. So, How does it feel? How does it feel, Arie? Do you have goosebumps? Well, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, Glenn is, most people watch this probably know who Glenn Lowry is, and he's sort of become the superstar of blogging is over the past couple of years and yeah so he moved off onto his own channel and uh i'm doing the same so i have to see what happens and you did an episode with gun where you talked about some of the uh reasoning behind this and it has to do with algorithms and um you know mm -hmm. the way youtube uh prioritizes content and shows suggest content and how we under i think we understand right. that process but anyway it, it seems like hopefully this will be a win-win, a non-zero-sum right. uh, interaction, and uh, that is the the REA that fans is the will argument. find REA content, and the REA non-fans who will find non-content. There are a fair number of them, and some of them overlap with Glenn fans, um, people who don't like my content that much. They will not be showing my content, and then they, um, you know, they will not leave a, a nasty comment or a thumbs down or something like that. Uh, yeah, not that we don't like people who leave nasty comments. They're all they're all part of the glorious diversity of life. But um, so we're going to talk about more about this at the end. Now that we've got people on the edge of their seats right, wanting so the, to hear more about the link, YouTube's algorithm. Yeah. If you are watching this on YouTube, the the link will be below and um, and on blogging heads. You know, the link will be below. And I think if you the, the link to your YouTube yeah, channel. The new channel, I think if you search culturally determined, it should come up. I don't think there's anything else that has that name. So, it, it, you know, it's a fledgling thing um so there's not that many uh uh subscribers yet so if you um you know if you want to keep following my video content you can um you can subscribe and uh it'll be delivered to you okay so we will we'll get back to that at the end a little i think and and, and talk more about the logic behind it but meanwhile uh we're gonna talk about a number of things uh Including maybe doing even a little reminiscing. I mean, the the other thing I should say is, for a long time you were working uh, for Blogging Heads, and you were uh, you weren't present at creation at the founding of it. But uh, as soon as I turned it into uh, uh, you know uh, an enterprise of a certain scale, that is to say, with multiple and more multiple employees. You were one of the employees, and this was, I think, 2007? Yes, I started late as a freelancer in late 2007. So, uh, the site itself uh, was started in 2005. I founded it along with Mickey Kaus and uh, a tech uh, genius named Greg Dingle, who was very important because, you know, the way we did it 
And I still remember, you know, I mean, uh, if you would like to uh, have me relive a great moment in technological history that only I was present for, only I can attest to, I, I'll be happy to help you with that, Arya. Would you like to hear a great moment in technological history? Go ahead. Well, if you insist. Um, so I remember we were trying to think of a way to do the split screen video thing online and the problem was broadband hadn't really arrived almost no one had broadband and so you couldn't like do what we're doing now which is have the con video conversation and just tape it uh and what i realized was you could just be having a phone conversation and each, each person on each side is taping locally uh, a, a video of themselves with not even a webcam laptops didn't come with webcam standard then we we the first uh we used camcorders i remember i personally handed a camcorder to like matt iglesias in a starbucks in dc i gave one to jonah goldberg i mean for a while we were issuing them to people you know after it expanded beyond me and mickey so anyway i realized you could you could uh if you each taped it and then uploaded it to a server, you could somehow put them together. And, and that's the part that Greg Dingle, you know, didn't just figure out. I mean, obviously it's doable, but he, but he created a, a pretty user-friendly template for doing it. So, in fact, I was the one doing it at first. I was the one doing production. Um, and uh, the rest is history. Now it is a global media juggernaut. Uh, and, you know, rumors, uh, that we will acquire CNN, I just can't, I can't comment on, but let me just say, it's not, that's not going to happen. I will say that. Um, so, so yeah. So, so the, you had this idea and so you were ahead of your time in envisioning something that would become a sort of standard format in various ways online. Um, but the technology didn't exist for it to for the average person to do something like this and so it took a lot of work behind the scenes um yeah physical physical some you know sometimes people were recording on like a you know physical drive or something and then they would mail it and people were talking to each other over the phone and sometimes it would take you know uh, eight hours for someone to upload if they were still on like a 56 modem or something and yeah um and whereas now you know we're, we're using you know there's there's multiple forms of the software that enables this everyone because of the pandemic everyone knows how to use zoom and um and now it's it's sort of yeah it, it, it once it, it it was uh novel in 2005 and stayed that way for a while and then the technology caught up and uh now pretty much um anyone can do it anyone can do it uh i, I mean it's actually kind of just getting to that point that you've got software out there that uh makes it almost a push button operation right you needed to, to, some, to actually generate the yeah, file if you have, like zero tech skills maybe it would still pose some challenge but you know uh, it's, it's getting close where yeah. the, uh, you have to pay for the software i'm not aware of any free software that uh makes it super easy but yeah and, and then also i mean separately there's uh the podcast thing and i i, I want to say we won't reminisce here forever i i, I want to We'll be getting into uh, larger um, social and or political issues, some of which are connected to this subject in a way. But um, 
There is also the whole podcast thing. So from the beginning, we were in effect a podcast in the sense that we had downloadable audio from the beginning. But I don't think, I mean, technically a podcast is something that involves uh, an RSS feed, I guess. And I don't think, I don't think we're plugged into that avenue at that point. And that I'm sure predated us. I do think we were the first uh, split screen video thing, certainly that discussed politics uh, and public affairs. Now there was, there was something that, that arrived a few weeks ahead of us, uh, the week in tech, which ha I think had split screen video from the beginning. Uh, and, but I think they actually had studio quality um, bandwidth and did it that way. I, I'm, I, I'm positive they didn't do the, uh, the Flintstones method that we use. And that, that's an interesting case because he has turned his thing into a thriving, very profitable enterprise, Leo Laporte. Um, and uh, you. I wouldn't say, whereas <laughs> I, you know, I wouldn't say that I've done that. I mean, in my defense, I wasn't, I wasn't spending all my time on that. I mean, I got a couple of books written, right. they did well and, yeah, and so on, but. It's interesting to, yeah, look back and so, yeah, I mean, Bloggins was both a pioneer of video on the web. I mean, it, launching in 2005, which is the same year YouTube launched. So it must've only launched a couple months after YouTube launched. And, and back then, you know, um, in the pre-YouTube era, you needed like a real player or various other plugins to get video and often it just wouldn't work or maybe you're downloading something and it didn't work. And so um, that was, so you were ahead of the curve in, in seeing that online video would become a big thing. And there's been various waves of that. I mean, there was a, well, there was a, a joke like eight or so years ago that every website was pivoting to video and then they pivoted away from video. And it seemed like Facebook uh, malfeasance had something to do with that. They were counting streams in various ways that weren't accurate. And so, the, yeah, so pivot to video became a joke, but we were up at Bloggingheads was, you know, <laughs> had video from the start. And at the same time, it also mm -hmm. essentially was a, you know, the, the basically a modern podcast uh, also. Yeah. Um, and you could you, usually, um, you know, there were some, <laughs> there, uh, certainly a visual element, but, um, you know, before podcast was a term that anyone really knew, it, it mm. essentially was a podcast. And so, that was ahead of the curve. And yeah. Um, and yeah, I was actually talking to someone, I won't mention his name, because he didn't, uh, you know, he, this was just a private comment, but someone we both know who was saying like, you know, the idea that pe there would be an audience for writers talking at length about whatever um, is essentially, you know, a large chunk of, of podcasting today. And that's what Blogging Heads was from the beginning, you know, the very early episodes were, were short, but it quickly became like at least an hour and it was different than what you would get on TV. And, you know, it was people who, um, at least at first, weren't the type of people who would appear on cable news or something like that, because there, a lot of them were bloggers or professors. And um, and so, yeah, there was a, a lot of things that you foresaw um, and... Among them, not how to build a profitable, highly profitable right. and media then empire. The question of why, you know, why blogging didn't become, I don't, whatever. I don't even know what you want to would want to say. Why did why didn't why blogging didn't become YouTube? That's sort of obvious because YouTube is a platform. Well, yeah, that that's a different thing, though. I I mean, there was that was a consideration. Let me quickly say, by the way, uh, you you said you know the idea of streaming video. Actually, that wasn't 
what was new. I actually started doing streaming video in 2000 or 2001. Right, with the original uh, Meaning of Life TV. With the, the Meaning of Life TV site, which was conversations I had had in person with people that were videoed and were done on streaming video. And in those days, you would have, you had to choose broadband or not broadband, and most people would choose a not broadband, and it was a super grainy video. And broadband just meant ISDN quality, which I don't think even exists anymore, and that was not the kind of quality we see today. But um, uh, so what was new was people talking, I'm not saying completely unique, but I think in the realm of political dialogue, uh, um, people who were talking remotely and it winding up as uh, video online without like having CNN or somebody behind you, just, just you know, uh, D, uh, DIY. Um, the, uh, what, one, well, I should all, just to shout out for Greg Dingle, uh, father of the Dingle Inc. Um, <laughs> we had, YouTube had not yet been, I don't know when YouTube came into being. It certainly did not yet belong. Okay, but it did not yet belong to Google, and, and most people hadn't heard of it. And we had pretty much right away something that we beat Google Video to, I know, which was the now familiar interface for creating a link that begins at any point in the video. In fact, ours began and ended, I think, at any point in the video, and Greg uh, created that. Okay, so enough enough yeah. trying to cement my, my role in technological and, and just, history. Mean, that actually, the Dingle Egg is actually interesting to think about as, you know, both, it was an innovation that, yeah, YouTube didn't have it where you could just start at any moment. Yeah. And then built into it was it would stop. The clip would stop. So you'd essentially be seeing a short clip and then it would stop. And you could either hit continue this video or you could go on with your life. Well, it turns out that if you're a profit maximizing corporation, you don't want them to stop watching. It just keeps it going. That, and then that's a good point. YouTube pioneered auto playing the next video that its algorithm suggests to the viewer. And so the you know, it's, it's a common thing. And all, all the streaming services do this now, too. You get to the credits you don't see the credits anymore if you're watching a Netflix TV show. The credits start three seconds later. You're watching the next episode. It's autoplayed. And maybe you might have fallen mm -hmm. asleep on the couch, but it, it's still streaming. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so um, that sort of like uh, quasi underhanded or totally underhanded thing of just like, let's rack up the views, the seconds played, the impressions or something. You know, blog has never had that. And um, other and other sites gamed that system in various ways either through total junk content of cute animals videos and you know cooking demonstrations and stuff or yeah something more underhanded like you would click once and you couldn't get it to stop playing or or something like that yeah now as for why we didn't become youtube i mean first of all that would have taken uh some real <laughs> fancy footwork and real resources but also, I remember when there were people suggesting things like that. Like, why don't you just create a platform where anybody can upload stuff? And you might have been able to kind of corner a version of that market if you had, if you had created, uh, the, if you had made it very easy. This whole business of two people recording something, notwithstanding low bandwidth, that would ultimately appear as a side-by-side -side video, if you had taken our our initial like method for doing that and made it very user friendly and invested in doing that, you might have been able to create kind of what was for a while, at least the platform for this kind of thing that, that could have happened. But I just said from the beginning, 
why would I want to spend my time doing a non-curated platform? I mean, I'm here to have, you know, some kind of influence on the world at however small a scale. And once you just say anybody can do anything, um, you're 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 not you're not having influence if you if if you're no longer being selective about the content. Right. I mean, so, you know. The whoever well Google bought YouTube. I don't, and we don't. You know the people who founded YouTube are their names are not famous, but you know Zuckerberg would be someone who just said, "Yeah, let basically anything go, and uh, we'll see what happens." And yeah, there were things that popped up like chat roulette was you know one sort of version. Oh, I had forgotten that. Was, that, I, was I, that a whole site? Was that a whole site? I think it was essentially just a website someone put together that made it easy to, and it, you would randomly it would like randomly assign you someone and they would pop up and then it, it turned into like you'd be in conversation with them and what killed what killed it was it would be every once would be some guy exposing exposing yeah, himself to you and they're like oh bad business model yeah then there's there's there is something i think it might be called omegle or i don't know if that's how it's correctly pronounced but it's sort of i guess a more i think teens use it a lot but yeah there's other things that are sort of like this but nothing yeah two people talking to each other on video didn't take over as its own thing. But if we look at like, if we remove the video and say that just two people having an unconstrained conversation that could go as long as you want, you could say that's Joe Rogan. That's, you know, any, yeah. any uh, like, you know, yeah, no, I investigative mean, the podcast better, or something. Right. The, the better question is why am I not Joe Rogan? Right. Well, you're not. And the answer is, the answer is I just didn't want to take testosterone supplements. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, otherwise, you're, you know, I would he, be unstoppable. Or as he would say, I would be unfucking stoppable. Well, his, you know, he, there, maybe it was personal charisma. Maybe it was that his things he was a kook about were not the things that you're a kook about. You're, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, wait. Hey, hey, hey. Or maybe I'm not a kook at all. Just throwing that out there. Right. Yeah, Go ahead. And, Go ahead. But he also, I guess, you know, he also had a sort of uh, take all comers kind of thing where he'd be like, oh, Alex Jones can come on. That's totally fine. Whereas you would. You know, you drew the line very early on. In fact, I think, um, uh, what's her name? Um, oh God, um, the uh, uh, Ann Coulter. Early on, there was a controversy when yeah, Ann Coulter well, was ever allowed on, and you said so that you was almost lines you were drawing. You know, this person would not be allowed on. They're gone the pale. Whereas Rogan was having Alex Jones, like you know, despicable human being. Uh, well, <laughs> on his show do you remember when? Uh, do you remember when uh, uh, somebody worked? Horace, who shall not be named, who's now uh, pretty prominent, made, made, a, made a name uh, first on Twitter and so on and writes for places. But as a kind of surprise for me, after Anthony Weiner's downfall, he, or, he, he set up a dialogue between Anthony Weiner and somebody else that was going to appear on the show. It was all set to go. Yeah, this was... And I, think... I, and I said, and, and look, that would have been ratings gold because nobody else... But I said, like, I'm not going to participate in Anthony Weiner's yeah, rehabil this rehabilitation. Like after the initial Anthony Weiner scandal, and then he was maybe launching somewhat of a comeback, and then there were like two additional scandals. Yeah. Before, of course, he ended before up in jail. Carlos, before Carlos Danger. I can't remember. Yes, but yeah. So you, there were things you would not, you know, propriety or uh, you know, you wouldn't go certain areas, whereas other places would, and that you know, going extreme is a way to get attention. Um, so there's, yeah, that's, that might be part yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, but uh, Joe Rogan's actually highly selective. It's just that his zone of selectivity uh, includes Alex Jones. I, I mean, there's, you know, he's very, uh, 
he doesn't he doesn't have on like many avowed enemies of the intellectual dark web and stuff, for example. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's true. But yeah, he uh, has. So, he, I so mean, he's got his thing. The, yeah, he definitely has people he likes and ideas he wants to generally promote. But he'll have, you know, I mean, I mean, and just the idea that there's some person who has been, you know, canceled. Using that word that everyone's sick of. It's like, you know, that adds this facade of, of like uh, secret knowledge or, or something. And so yeah, the controversial people, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting to wonder whether, you know, what it, what, were there junctions at which if decisions have been made differently, plugins would now be the uh, uh, you know, world bestriding Colossus or um, because it really, like I said, it was ahead of the curve in certain ways that were important. And a lot of, you know, a lot of media now looks kind of like classic blogging heads stuff in various ways, although and I think, well, here's here's one thing I would say is that what the revealed preferences of the average American media consumer is they want their own tribal preferences reinforced and they want their tribal enemies destroyed. And, you know, videos where it's like Ben Shapiro destroys woke college student had millions right. of views on YouTube. And from the beginning, you were committed to, uh, you know, conservative liberal, uh, progressive libertarian, religious, not religious, uh, Cows, Robert Wright, you know, you're committed to crossing tribal boundaries. And it turns out that that is less popular than just revving up one's own side. Well, yeah, but by, by common agreement, more needed now. Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that reinforced that was for a time, uh, for I guess a few years, uh, you tell me, we were featured on the homepage of the New York Times. Right. I mean, that's kind of how novel it was. I mean, the New York Times, God knows the production values weren't great. They were, they were running some things with production values that would seem laughable today if you said this was on the New York Times. Right. And yet, it's in the New York Times archives. Uh, and, and that reinforced... Uh, our initial tendency to try to, with some frequency, have kind of debatey conversations with, with clearly contrasting opinions. I mean, like we had uh, an Israeli and an Egyptian guy that, you know, at the time, it, it, this doesn't seem amazing now, but at the time, and the New York Times, they loved that one. It was Gershom, you know who it was? It was Gershom Gorenberg, oh, who yeah. you just had on your show. Right. Talking about he was the Israeli talking about his new book, uh, it's Shadow War. What is the play on War Shadow Shadows. War? Yeah, that's War of Shadows, uh, which sounds really interesting. I listened to your podcast on culturally determined. Um, yeah, and that, that's uh, an interesting episode if you're interested in World War II. And this is a story, and, a World War II and, story and, that is and code less, breaking less and yeah, and and uh, it's a, it's a story I hadn't heard at all having to do with uh how close uh, the Germans may have been to, to taking over the Middle East uh, via Rommel. But um, the, uh, so anyway, it was him and an Egyptian guy. And at the time, uh, you just, it's not like you would see that on cable TV. It's not like they would arrange to have an Israeli guy talk to an Egyptian guy. It just didn't really happen much. And, and yet, you know, suddenly we could do that. And uh, so, so we did that for a while. And, 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 uh, now we really don't do much of that mixing and matching. Uh, I, we may revive it. I don't know, but 
It's like anybody can do it. Now, I suppose, in a sense, there's more need for it now than ever for somebody to actually arrange to have people who disagree strongly talk because left to their own devices, people tend to use the technology to talk to people in their own tribe. Yeah. I mean, and I mean the technology broadly, podcasting technology and any kind of dialogue technology. Yeah, um, and I, I do it myself on my own show. I mostly, I, I, you know, I'm not naturally a person who enjoys debating. And it's also just easier to get someone on who I generally agree with. And I find them interesting in some way than to get someone on who I'm like, OK, this is going to be I need to like do research in order to counter their perspective or something. So it, it's just it's much simpler just to, in general for right. you know, to have people on that you generally agree with. and. I, I have somewhat the same issue. I, I think one thing to try to overcome is the idea that you're going to need to win. Like, you're going to need for people in your tribe to say, yeah, you beat him. You know, that's, that's, what, that's one thing that makes you feel like, oh, God, I'd have, to, I'd have to do research for a week to be ready for this. You can just go in with the goal of trying to understand their position better and telling them why, given what you know about it now, you think they're full of shit. <laughs> And that's it, and call it a day. Yeah, but the, um, thing, like, you know, the the things that go viral in various realms are, you know, someone embarrassing someone else. Yeah, the right. Ben Shapiro destroys so See, and so. Right. People, now you it, ask, it turns out people want that way more than they want a balanced, you know, discuss, polite discussion, even if in depth and intelligent. Like the yeah, people people want right. to see now the this is, enemies destroyed. This is one thing that held us back. Was I always felt. Like the people coming on, all the people coming on are our guests. You know, two people talking to each other, whether they're talking to me or not. And I didn't, you know, we did uh, from the beginning uh, select clips. Now, this was before social media was such a thing. So it's not like we were distributing them on social media, but uh, we did try to distribute them. And then when social media came along, we continued. And I always kind of felt I don't want to try to embarrass anyone. Um, you know, especially not unfairly. And, and you know, 60% or so, <laughs> this is my, uh, my uh, out-of-nowhere finding. I'm going to assert that about 60% of the clips that go viral by virtue of embarrassing someone do so unfairly. They take it out of context or something, um, at least 60%. And uh, I never, you know, anyway, so uh, I, you look, didn't, you there's didn't all kinds that. of reasons I'm not, you know, you didn't have the killer instinct or the amoral, you know, capability to like, you know, it, it, Tucker Carlson invites people onto his show so that he can either, you know, people he doesn't agree with so that he can dunk on them, embarrass them and cut their mic if they try to um, fight back enough. And then, you know, there's never a Tucker Carlson episode where he's like the loser in the end. He's always the winner. And because it's a rigged game and that's, you know, that's cable TV now. And has been for a long time um and yeah so that's that's popular and um yeah yeah i i mean i don't want to flatter myself too much uh i i, I mean part of it is just i'm not a good i'm not a good uh i mean there are a lot of things i'm just not good at like uh promoting stuff uh scaling up an organization um and so on but uh you know, it's we're still here. Uh, and so, I don't know, did you, you had some, uh, what else? We were going to, we had thought we might talk 
about some other stuff and that this subject might even lead to other stuff, as I recall. Yeah, well, we could, you know, we could look back, as long as we're looking back, we can look back on the Mindful Resistance Project we've both worked on. Um, I had a I had a bone to pick with you on journalistic neutrality, which is also somewhat related. Um, we could go there, and or yeah. we could talk this idea, you know, uh, Facebook, um, you know, the power of Facebook, and uh, is Facebook the noosphere? That's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, what, 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 where do you think we should go? Let's pass over mind resistance really quickly, just because we've been doing. Uh, a lot of reminiscing that may seem self-indulgent. That was the predecessor of what is now the non-zero newsletter, which I put out and is put out uh, more broadly by the non-zero foundation as was mindful resistance. Um, I mean, that actually kind of does lead to the journalistic neutrality issue because part of the idea of mindful resistance was that the resistance to Trump was too reactive and mindless and, and it played into his hands. And I think one of the things that played into his hands is uh, is the way the mainstream media, uh, I think, freaked out about him. I, I don't think freaking out about him was by itself a mistake in judgment. I mean, I, I, I find him a very alarming figure, but, but more than that, I find alarming the fact that the circumstances had gotten to a point where somebody like him could become president. But in any event, I thought, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, implicitly declared war on him and it colored their coverage and i think in ways and this coincided with the clickbait media economy so like they knew which headlines were getting clicks and and so uh they could see that that a headline kind of slanted against trump uh would get clicks and i didn't even know how consciously they thought it through but i think that led them to put out a product that made, you know, well, not just Trump supporters, but, uh, I mean, a lot of people would say, look, your average Trump supporter is they were long, long ago had given up on mainstream media. That's probably true. But, but I think if, if you look at your more, say, moderate Trump supporters or the ones that were still gettable, um, I think the way the media reacted to Trump alienated them further or completely uh, or more completely from mainstream media in ways that I think have have uh, caused us problems during the pandemic. I mean, I think if you ask, well, why don't they trust these authorities who tell them that the vaccines are great? They, uh, I think, some distrust was created uh, by the way mainstream media reacted to Trump. I mean, CNN and MSNBC, you know, it, it was you know, RussiaGate is is. Uh, a good example. It, it's not that, I mean, I didn't dismiss it out of hand. I was agnostic. I was willing to wait and see. But uh, it was clear to me from the beginning that there was, I was still waiting for the smoking gun. And there were a lot of people in media, on cable TV and so on, who, who, who didn't feel that way. They thought it was pretty clear, you know, and they acted that way. And, and they seemed to have been wrong. So. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, I mean. I guess what I wanted to maybe talk about, and yeah, we've, we've done a lot of reminiscing and self-indulgence, so this, we can keep this short, but, um, you know, so the mindful resistance thing, I was working on it with you and we had a newsletter and, um, you know, obviously the, the, the project did not take the country by storm and, you know, Trump 
was defeated in 2020, and so without my four resistance taking the country by storm, so um, you know, can I interject my final self promotional thing? <laughs> yes, it did. It did show steady growth. Non-zero now has you know 23,000 subscribers, uh, a growing number of paid subscribers. It's been it's kind of been a four yards in a cloud of dust uh, struggle to build the, the circulation, but uh, it's you know it's worth it, it continues to be worth pursuing, right? Um, and everyone should subscribe. Yeah. So uh, so part of this is you know I think you have a commitment to journalistic neutrality and a lot of the things that you well you wrote a substantial number of pieces for Mindful Resistance about you know say a New York Times article that cast. Trump or Trump supporters in an unfair way through like subtle use of language or headlines or something. And then you were showing how, you know, someone who was not the average New York times reader would interpret this stuff like that. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I feel like journalist neutrality of the kind that you want from main, a mainstream outlet, like the New York times or the, or the post, the Washington post, I feel like that era has just passed and it was almost a, you know, the, uh, maybe more of a historical oddity than some sort of standard. I mean, in in Britain, there's a dozen or so different national papers, and they all have various ideological slants, and they sort of fight it out. And they, you know, British papers will just print things that blatantly aren't true. Like they will they will make things up that never happened. This is more for in sort of a tabloid way. Like <laughs> there was a story from the eighties or something that they. They just made up entirely about um, a paint painting paintings of children, sort of sentimental paintings of children that maybe old ladies would hang up in their um, you know their living rooms. Were these actually haunted and were causing fires um, and causing the houses to burn down? Uh, this was based on you know like an arson or something where they found like a sentimental painting of a child. Then they said, well, what if what if this was actually haunted? And this is like a theme that one of, you know, the, the major British tabloid type papers is pursuing for years. And they just, you know, this is just entirely made up. So there's different ways that, you know, the media could be arranged. And, you know, Britain has had papers in some form of the free press longer than America has. And they're still going. They obviously have their, they have their own problems. But I just think like the total objectivity, just the facts style that maybe only like the AP strives for at this point, um, like... People just don't, I don't know, people don't want that anymore. It, it's clear. They want, you know, we're inundated by facts I, I don't everywhere. think that is clear. I don't think that is clear. I mean, I think you're right. It, it may have been rare in history. Certainly there was apparently, I'm not, no American historian, but there was apparently large, long period in American history where the press was very partisan. And, and I, I, I guess it's the case that that's been more often the case than not. Yeah, there's a lot of papers but, that are called like the you know, the Democrat or something. And that's because like the Democratic yeah. Party started it and then it evolved into like a modern paper. Yeah, but, but, uh, A, that shows it's possible. And the fact that it's an aberration, um, there are all kinds of laudable things that are aberrations, uh, but I'm, they're still laudable. There are all kinds of things that are hard to do that usually aren't done that are worth trying to do. So the fact that it's an historical aberration has no impact whatsoever on my my view of its uh, worthwhileness. Uh, as for whether there, you know, in what sense its time has passed, I mean, everyone agrees we're in a very kind of tribal moment, and there is a lot of demand 
uh, for tribal media. As I said, the New York Times is correctly gauging what headlines were getting clicked on. That's all true. But I do think I am hearing enough discontent with the particular thing about mainstream media I'm complaining about that I, I think there's probably uh, room. I think a really well done Just the News uh, site, really well done one. I'm sure there are things out there now that are, are trying to do that, but, but uh, something that got some attention and was really well produced. Um, it might it might do better than you uh, than you think. I, I don't know. Well, I, uh, the certainly te- the technological incentives are going away from that. And yeah, the the headline you know a headline that exaggerates um, is more likely to get clicks on social media. I, and I even I have a theory that um, that like social media editors at various outlets purposely write headlines that they know are going to make people angry. And get them like quote tweeted with people saying this is so fucking stupid, so that they get more impressions. So like they're purposely sabotaging their their own work and, and making making it worse to make people angry. And when people are angry, they share things on social media. Um, so that's all. That's bad. Um, you know that's that's not that's only good for like the bottom line or the number of clicks. Um, and but that the, the, that's where the incentives are right now um and yeah the ap and reuters still exist but people i don't know and that that has an, an audience of course but you know people you can't you know you can't force feed them their their vitamins like they it turns out they want you know they they want a slant that reinforces their their preferences yeah, yeah i mean my main thing is just to say i don't think this is good you know, how feasible it is to produce something better is a separate question, but I'm going to continue to call attention to how bad I think media is. I mean, first of all, I should say, I don't think true objectivity is possible, but I think they're basic, you know, if if you can create a journalistic ethos uh, that leads reporters to come much closer to objectivity than they are now coming on both sides, of course, on the on the Fox News side, God knows on the OAN side, uh, as well as on the New York Times, MSNBC side. Um, and, uh, you know, and of course, there's a hobby horse of mine, uh, the way foreign, the world is perceived by Americans, the way, uh, you know, foreign policy issues are presented to Americans. That is a different kind of tribalism at work, I think. Uh, and I think that's uh, at least as challenging to overcome. I mean, the bias that I think is there that some people probably don't think is there, the Amer- kind of not even Americanocentric, because it's not it's not like we're presenting the news from the perspective of someone who who really wants to wisely pursue American interests. It's not. It's like we're presenting the world from the perspective of, uh, you know, someone who very primitively is trying to pursue American interests in a way that may prove self-defeating. Um, and uh, anyway, that's a, a separate hobby horse. And, and I should say, I, I try to address all these things in the newsletter, the non-zero newsletter, which I'm plugging again, apparently. <laughs> yeah, and the, um, yeah, you, I mean, you're, you critique the, especially the way the Times... Um, 
you know, writes about foreign policy and in a very sort of us versus them, like, way that, you know, seems to support more hawkishness as opposed and, to... And a threat inflationary... A, a th threat inflation is a separate problem in journalism. There's, a, there's an incentive to inflate threats generally in journalism, and you certainly see that in the realm of foreign policy. Right. Um, you know, I, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I've, there was something that struck me. So you, okay, so, so Slate did, did this series, Slow Burn, is that what it's called? That was about the run-up to the Iraq yeah. invasion. And you and Mickey and other people who are Slate writers, you know, circa 2003 did a sort of roundtable that was a bonus episode uh, to, to this podcast. And so tell me, you know, this was months ago, but something I remember, you, I think you did say it was like, you're talking about the sort of groupthink that emerged such that, you know, Slate, uh, you know, the majority of people who worked at Slate were, were for the Iraq war, either like rah-rah or they're like, yeah, this is, this will, this is probably a good idea. And he said something like, like all the, like sort of the cool kids, the cool kids in journalism were like, we're all for it. And does, it, does this ring a bell? Is that something you might've said? Yeah, Maybe? no, I think I said that. That was it. And Slate was one of the cool kids. I mean, some of them were making the case that, well, okay, so Slate had kind of mostly gotten it wrong. I mean, I was writing a column for Slate, and I opposed the war. Uh, and there were some other people associated with Slate who arguably opposed it. But by and large, Slate was behind the war. And almost every major uh, outlet. Yeah, I mean, a perfect example of the way this worked was... Um, so the New Yorker ran this piece by Jeffrey Goldberg, who, you know, having having gotten the story I'm about to describe momentously, consequentially and disastrously wrong, is, of course, now the editor of The Atlantic. That's the way the meritocracy runs. But um, the the uh, the story was that he ran a couple of different pieces about different things that uh, weren't exactly flattering uh, to the Iraq uh, regime. But this one. Was, was providing supposed evidence that maybe there was a connection between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. And he ran that in The New Yorker. And he did do some of the qualifiers like, well, I'm just, you know, I went and talked to these guys and they say there is one. Well, first of all, he was ushered, you know, by people who would like to see us in a war. He went over to Iraq and was ushered by, I think, Kurds into some jail and they said, here, talk to these two guys. And they said, yeah, yeah, we were, you know, you know, there's this connection. And, and he reports it. And yes, he does the qualifiers kind of like, but um, then, okay, so that's in the New Yorker. Then Slate has a uh, conversation, uh, a dialogue between him uh, and someone equally hawkish about this. So Slate arranges a dialogue about his really, uh, you know, dubious story with someone who doesn't doubt it at all, okay? So Slate performs that service, and then NPR, uh, and actually this is most consequential when months later he goes back and does another thing for the New Yorker about it, now that there have been people like me saying this may be bullshit, and, and he's kind of reviving, managing to revive the story and get it in the system now, and he and he's interviewed by NPR, like Robert Siegel, I think, on All Things Considered. Okay, so you've got one bullshit story, and who's behind it? The New Yorker, 
Slate and NPR, who's who's behind getting it out there? Those are three different important. At, at that point, it's like the New Yorker was well, pretty much what it what it is now. You, you, people know what the demographic is. Slate was kind of younger, feistier, um, you know, and 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 edgier and cooler. I think because you know Mike Kinsley had only just stepped down as editor, and Mike was hugely and rightly respected uh, in the um, in the media establishment, and so it really did have clout. And then the then there's the NPR demographic, which overlaps with the New Yorker demographic, but is also like a true mass uh, more than more than than now was a mass mainstreaming into the into the liberal elite class. And all these people were, were, were de facto behind the war. I mean, New Yorker ran an actual kind of editorial by right. the editor right. in, okay. in support of the war. So that's, yeah, so that's, the, the, that, that's what the environment was in you know, late 2002, early 2003. So uh, at that time, I was in college. I was, you know, 19 or 20 years old. And I remember... So I remember summer of 2002 talking to a friend of mine during summer break, and I was like, no, they're, they're not going to invade Iraq. This is insane. It makes no sense at all. Why would they Why would they do this? It'll never happen. And, of course, I was wrong. But, you know, on the, my college campus, there were hundreds or thousands of people who came out for various anti-Iraq war protests. So my question is, what, what you know, <laughs> the cool kids all ended up being wrong. A number of, you know, 19-year-old college students turned out were right that the Iraq war, that the invasion shouldn't have happened. And other sort of, you know, people who are outside the system didn't want it to happen, but pretty much everyone within the, you know, government, the, the media system, the cool kids, they all came to think this was a good idea. Whereas me, 19 years old, thinking like, this is so stupid. They'll never even do it. Like how did, so like, how was the dynamic such that, you know, the the insiders all ended up being wrong and some group of outsiders were were right. Does, does this make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, it's a mystery because, as you said, it made no sense. I mean, I still remember the moment where, you know, the U.S. had been demanding and even already was amassing troops and demanding that, that uh, Saddam Hussein allow U.N. weapons inspectors in. And otherwise, he was going to face invasion. And so he said, okay, they can come in. And I thought, well, okay, now we won't invade. I just thought it was over. But actually, the, the weapons inspectors went into Iraq. They were not denied access to a single facility that they wanted to inspect. They were finding nothing. And they were finding nothing exactly in the places our intelligence had said they, were find, they would find things. And so finally, we just kicked, we just told the weapons inspectors to get the fuck out because we had to invade the country. Now, that may sound too crazy to be real, but it's exactly what happened. The weapons inspectors were there being allowed to look wherever they wanted. Can, yeah. Can you find a story early on where they had to cool their heels outside of some facility because Saddam Hussein was putting up a show of resistance and they had to wait two days to inspect it or something? Yeah. But, but basically, we were learning that our intelligence was wrong and the inspectors were being allowed. Ultimately, not, I don't think there's a single place. They asked to see that they were not ultimately allowed to, to see, even if they had to camp out outside of it for a day or two. And, um, and yet, we kicked them out so we could invade. So, I just want to heighten the puzzle. It, it's like, I don't have the answer. I, I, it probably has something to do with, like, groupthink, confirmation bias, 
once you sort well, of has, it, start taking steps along the path, you're more likely to continue to say, wait, was I wrong this whole time? You know, I was not a fan of George W. Bush as a 19-year-old, and so I probably opposed would have opposed whatever he did at that point. But it is basically almost everyone, and so, I, you know, I listened to that whole podcast. I recommend people listen to it. It's interesting. Um, almost everyone who had some kind of power got, like, got this massively wrong. And so how can we, you know, how can we, and, so, and you know, this was a catastrophic mistake. Uh, and yet it had like, you know, from the elite, it had like 90% buy-in. So how can we, you know, how do you make a system such that a mistake like that doesn't happen again, um, where, you know, all the, all the cool people, all the smart people end up being horribly wrong. I mean, one, one thing would be the people who are horribly wrong get punished in some way. And that of course didn't happen. Jeffrey Goldberg is, you know, uh, and it's the Atlantic now instead of being run out of town on a rail. Um, but because so many people, everyone, basically everyone, quote unquote, got it wrong. You couldn't do any sort of like denazification style thing of like. Right. I mean, that, that that's why, by the way, there was no accountability. Yeah, everyone. Was there wrong, was nobody so to enforce the accountability. Yeah. All the powerful people didn't want accountability. Yeah. where And uh, I and, and when listening to the podcast, a lot of people talked about how effective the um, Colin Powell's testimony was before the U.N. And a lot of people who are sort of on the fence were like, well, we trust Colin Powell. He's a smart guy. You know, he's the only one with the head on his head on straight in the Bush administration. If he says this, it must be mm -hmm. true. And I was just thinking back to I don't remember that exact moment. But I, I was just as a 19, 20 year old, I was like, well, this is all bullshit. They just want to do this. They're lying to us. And that sort of like you know, the system, <laughs> fuck the system, the system is corrupt. Perspective obviously isn't going to like ascend to the, the higher levels of power, although maybe like Trump yeah. sort of did it in a weird way. But, you know, it, like, I don't, it, it's just very strange that so many people who had no power at all were just looking in from the outside to see that this was a giant mistake. And so many intelligent people who were, had power closer to the inside or at the very top thought this was a, this was a great idea. And yeah, none of them. Yeah, but. And no, no one who got this wrong suffered in any way the people who suffered were the iraqi civilians and the soldiers we sent over there and um yeah oh and the consequences continue to go on probably wouldn't be isis uh if there had you know uh, you just don't get me started uh, on the consequences no donald trump if if there was no iraq oh, quite possibly quite quite possibly when you look at the whole picture um i want to emphasize i didn't think colin powell was full of shit i thought okay fine uh maybe there's weapons there Leave it to the inspectors. Nobody is saying, no one was even claiming that they had uh, a truly, you know, a massively lethal weapon. Nobody, I mean, some people thought maybe they had anthrax. That is, that is a biological weapon. It's a very bad weapon, but it's not communicable. It doesn't yeah. spread. It's and, not like a smallpox thing or something. Yeah, and, it doesn't spread from person to person. Listening to that podcast, the, the, um, the anthrax attack that happened, it actually originated in Princeton in some, in some strange way. Um, oh, yeah. Th things were mailed from a post box in Princeton, but that you could, like, that's sort of a key semi-forgotten incident that freaked everyone the fuck out after, shortly after 9-11. And then if you think, right. like, the fear of an, a massive anthrax attack um, and how scared apparently people were rightly wrong about that versus what actually has happened with COVID. Whereas, you know, if you had said Iran is working on the secret, um, you know, biological weapon that's going to kill 700,000 Americans, including our beloved right. senior citizens, uh, like, you know, we would have flattened the country, you know, to asphalt. Whereas the way it happened, because 
I don't know. It has something to do with the psychology of tribalism and like you can't get mad at a virus yeah. or something. There's no enemy evil person we can destroy. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, a lot of people are basically fine with it and, and, and all sorts of people are saying it's, it's not even happening. It's a hoax. It's, you know, they, they don't want to take the shot, yeah. et cetera. So there's all sorts of <laughs> crazy psychology that continues to play out with this stuff. But yeah, if, you know, if just thinking about the, the alleged threat of bioweapons or chemical weapons, you know, in 2000, 2003 versus actual COVID and the damage is wrecked ac- across the country. It's, you know, yeah. I, there's nowhere to invade no, fear, to defeat COVID. I guess that's part of it. Fear, fear, you're right, played a big role. This was after 9-11, although it was also, you know, a year and a half after 9-11. We had a little time to cool down and we, we had invaded one country. And uh, but anyway, and then you're right, the anthrax coming on the heels of 9-11 made that a very potent talking point. Um, Everyone was scared. Like, you know, I, I, I remember getting back. I was in college, you know, so there'd be a package delivered at the college post office that w- had some, you know, laundry detergent or something, and everyone freaked the fuck out, and they shut it down. And, yeah, so there was a lot of <laughs> understandable fear going on. But, yeah. you know, that's a, making a weighty decisions from a, a place of, of fear is obviously bad um do you want to well we've probably gone on maybe longer on both of these topics do you want to can i ask you a question about foreign policy which is one of the areas you're focusing on now in your writing sure. and your episodes you know so i guess the you know it seems like there's pretty much broad agreement that invading middle eastern countries is what is generally going to end in a disaster certainly occupying them and trying to change you know, impose a new government on them. This isn't going to work. Seems very unlikely this there's something like that would happen again. Who knows? But if we take you know take invasion off the table, you know, hopefully, you know, okay. So the the Bob, as I understand, the Bob Wright foreign policy would say, you know, don't don't invade another country unless you have UN authorization because that is international law, and that will generally prevent a lot of problems from happening that that makes sense to me um but once we say okay we're not going to invade and occupy any other countries especially countries in the middle east um how different is your policy and sort of the restraint policy that has become more popular over the past couple years and the quincy institute is one there's a think tank that's promoted this idea and restraint is or the restrainers i guess is a term that's been applied to various foreign policy thinkers who are, you know, don't want us to get involved in any more foreign wars. Um, you know, where does this bleed into just sort of like an isolationism or a, I'm not, I don't know if I'm phrasing this question well, you know, like the, after World War II, it seems like, you know, once America was sort of a the hegemon, the conception became how can we prevent something like this from happening again, especially the Holocaust, or how can we prevent a power like Germany, <laughs> you know, taking taking so much? Like, it seems like that's never mm-hmm. going to happen again um, for various reasons. But how should America exercise its power if we say, yeah, we're not going to invade another country. This has been disastrous too much. And where does... Yeah, where does that leave us, especially because... I don't know. I I feel like I've lost, you know, I used to be someone and who was like, oh, the United Nations, the, you know, we should respect them. It makes a lot of sense. I don't know. We've had a lot of international crises over the past five, 10 years. And it seems like the UN really hasn't done that much, especially COVID. 
Um, uh, the UN and the WHO seem to have really fallen down on this. And, you know, this is not a gotcha, but if you know the name of the UN General, General Secretary, I, I, I've i been told his name. I've seen his name multiple times. I can never remember. This guy plays essentially no yeah, role. In, I, I was just thinking about that the other day. Like, there was Kofi I heard Anna, the name. <laughs> right. I heard that. Well, I can, I can, yeah, I, I think can it's go Spanger. a little further than that, but. But yeah, yeah. I, well, I think he's from speeches. Argentina or something, but but uh, or somewhere. But I was thinking about that the other day. I heard the name and I thought, you know, even I don't remember that name because it has re- kind of receded in significance. I mean, the UN per se. I mean, probably more people could take a shot at the name of the WHO head. At least I've heard him at least as much on the radio as the head of the UN per se. I mean, yeah, we. This is the. We've been undergoing the biggest global crisis since 1945 with the pandemic, and it seems like the international institutions have not been up to the task. Almost no, the national institutions haven't really been up to the task either. And so I don't know. I, I it makes me feel like what you know you you talked a lot about respect for international law and building more you know like international governance capabilities. I don't know. The the pandemic has made it seem like is this is this a lost cause? Is the I mean we can't even. We can barely govern this our own country. You know, okay. Like, okay, there's a lot. You you've already I asked know, a lot. Everywhere, okay. but like, let, let me just let me just start. Uh, where to begin? So first of all, another plug. If you want to Google my name and what is progressive realism, you'll see my ideology spelled out in in uh, on the old kind of version of the non-zero newsletter site at nonzero.org. But um, the uh, I, I mean, first of all, well, no, that would be second of all, wouldn't it? Um. If you're attacked, I wouldn't wait around for the UN to respond, okay? Nations do have a right of self-defense. Um, the, uh, and, you know, the UN, I mean, you got to remember what the UN was actually designed for. It was designed fundamentally to stop trans-border aggression. Uh, that, that, and so, for example, the Persian Gulf War was actually uh, a good example of the UN security working well. Whatever you think of that war, Iraq had invaded Kuwait. The Security Council authorized the United States to lead a coalition that rolled back the aggression. It did. And wisely, it stopped. We stopped after rolling back the aggression. It didn't try to take over Iraq. Um, so, you know, it, 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 the UN can work in the, in the modern world. now. I think we had a good opportunity right then after the Cold War to build on this model of the Security Council as a serious thing because it had been paralyzed during the Cold War by rivalry between the U.S. and and uh, and and Soviet Union because both of those have veto power. There are five permanent members of the Security Council that have veto veto power, um, but. Uh, Sadly, uh, for starters, uh, and I'm not saying George Bush complied perfectly with the UN Charter. That little kidnapping of Manuel Noriega, who was the leader of Panama. George H. W. Bush, the yeah, yeah, George George H. W. Bush. But he did, he did. It was an important moment when he went to the UN to authorize the the Persian Gulf War. Um, Bill Clinton, uh, and I moderately, I, I, I wrote a skeptical op-ed in the New York Times about this at the time. Uh, he intervened in Kosovo without UN authority 
uh, you know, it, it was Serbia. He was intervening in the internal affairs of Serbia. There was a there was a rebellion, uh, you know, kind of a in a way a nationalist rebellion in in, in Kosovo, and uh, he decided he wanted to intervene on its side. And against the, you know, whatever you think of uh, that government, the sovereign government of Serbia. And uh, that was, I think, pretty clearly a violation of the UN Charter, what America did. And uh, it's an interesting counterfactual. And, and look, you know, again, Slobodan Milosevic was a bad guy, but life is very complicated. And the decision made at the end of World War II was to build a structure that would really prioritize ending transborder aggression, delegitimizing invasion of all these kinds. And it, it wasn't designed fundamentally to usher bad leaders off the stage, okay? It granted a certain amount of, of significance to national sovereignty, uh, but, but drew the line at, at transborder aggression, at violations of sovereignty. So um, it's an interesting, and, and then George W. Bush, of course, ignored the charter in the case of Iraq, not in the case of Afghanistan. And I will say Clinton uh, harnessed the UN charter in the, in the, in the Bosnia intervention. That was technically transborder aggression. I could get into why it's kind of technical, but it was. And so he got Security Council support and and that's all to the good. Um, it's an interesting question. If, if the U.S. had really said after the Persian Gulf War, look, we're really going to stick with this. And we're really going to start taking international law seriously and abided by that itself and not, in, not done Kosovo, not invaded Iraq, and and said that this is, you know, the, this norm of com actual compliance with international law is something we want to nourish. And we hadn't committed those violations of it. Libya is a borderline case, by the way, of whether there was a, a violation. But, um, well, you know, w would would uh, Russia wound up uh, invading Crimea, for example? Would the, the, the dust up in uh, Georgia have happened? Well, more more than a dust up. Um, not at all clear to me. I, I don't know, but part of my ideology is I think that the U.S. It, it's in its own interest to actually take that, bring that kind of strictness to adherence with international law. I, I won't. We didn't have time for the whole argument, yeah, but I, let me. So again, I, I you know I'm not. I don't know much about international relations. I I'm a bit of logging heads uh, consumer for a number of years. Probably the main thing that's uh, you know inform me about it over the years. I mean, just a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, a violation of international law by great power, doesn't, there's no punishment. Um, and so America was not sanctioned or uh, had, you know, uh, Bill Clinton arrested for uh, the Kosovo, um, you know, invasion or military conflict. So, and, you know, Russia, uh, Vladimir Putin was not arrested for the annexation of Crimea. So, there, so there's that. Um, and then there's, you know, like, was the U UN set up to prevent transborder aggression or the cynical reading? It was a way for the great powers to sort of divide spheres of influence. And, you know, America continued to like, you know, what, what, it was the Vietnam War transborder aggression. Like we didn't the like, I, I don't know how that all works. And, you know, well, technically we had been uh, invited in. I don't know what the status of the South Vietnamese government was but I, I believe okay, you could yeah, argue that uh, yeah, the, its, its status in international law was that for it to invite us and you know we were not invading it i mean as a matter of fact we were it, we were getting involved in a civil war 
which is in a sense what we wound up doing in Afghanistan. Right. But, and, uh, but then from the other from the opposite side is sort of the, um, you know, just saying we're not going to, you know, your internal affairs are your own transport aggression is all we care about. Well, let's say, you know, uh, Germany, you know, uh, annexed or the Anschluss or whatever it's called, you know, Austria and then other, you know, uh, a chunk of Czechoslovakia was taken also. And if, if Germany had uh, limited the um, the Holocaust to those areas, you know, um, where you said, well, those, that's just internal. Those are just the internal affairs of, of Germany. You know, so, I mean, the specter of, you know, the, the Holocaust and other World War II atrocities sort of hangs over international relations. And the idea, I mean, it seems very unlikely there'd be a second Holocaust, but the idea of preventing genocide or or something you know continues to well okay i mean a couple of things i mean first of all there are cases where i were where i wouldn't a wait for the un and b wouldn't worry about uh international law and, th and that would be a case of true genocide in the old-fashioned sense okay but 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 that's hard but, you know uh, if that's sort of it's hard you know it, different people <laughs> do, do we go to like the genocide sure but, uh, but if you're asking say, okay but, you can ignore right. law now that's okay like it's this gets back to your conversation. Well, again, with the, it would uh, it would be a case it would be a case so extreme that I doubt you would encounter it. I mean, I'm talking the the actual uh, mass execution of hundreds of thousands of people or something. I seriously doubt. Uh, likely we're, that it would happen again. But yeah. at the same time, it did you know it, it did happen once in in you know. The but but the other thing I'd say is, if it's not being done by one of the big five, and you might say, well, it could be done by by Russia, China, the U.S., France, or Germany, even in the modern world, could be. And of course, what what China's doing, um, in, you know, in in uh, whatever the pro name of the province is with the Uyghurs, um, is very bad. I don't think it's genocide, although people are very casually calling it that. But it's very bad. Um, but you know, if you imagine that that reached the level of uh, uh, genocide in kind of the old-fashioned strict sense. Um, then what I'm about to say would have no bearing. But it is the case that if you're talking about like Rwanda or something, um, the UN, the Security Council has the power, although, you know, it's true, it's designed fundamentally to stop transborder aggression. It has the power to, there's a, there's a, I forget which chapter it in, but, but, but intervene for the sake of, quote, international peace and security, I think is the phrase. That gives it, in effect, a very broad mandate. If you get a majority vote on the Security Council, none of the five members uh, veto it, you can do pretty much whatever you want, which reinforces your idea that, yeah, there is a, a cynical reading of the UN, the, of the creation of the UN. It's not totally uh, out of, uh, you know, not totally off base, which is that it was a, an agreement among great powers to run the world. Uh, you know, look, you could look at America's legal system and say it's a way that uh, rich people get a better deal than poor people. I, rich people, I, rich people commit that, a crime and they they usually get off. Yeah, I move, they, I move they, towards they hire that, position, a good that cynical position, you know, more and more as the years go by. But yeah, the difference, yeah. but it's sort of like, I guess that, you know, listening to, uh, sorry, his name is escaping me, the realist scholar who you had on a month or so ago on your show. John Mearsheimer. Yeah, Mearsheimer, you know, the, like, the great powers act as the, see within their own interests and and the sort of state of nature on the international stage such that you know there, there's no ultimate authority that's going to punish america or punish russia for, for like doing things pretty much ever 
I don't know. It's it, it, it just seems like right. well, we're screwed. I don't know. I, I, more and more, I, I tend to think we're screwed. Yeah, but, but okay. But I mean, Arya, it's like, you gotta, you know, I, I personally believe that as severe a, a threat as climate change is, it's not alone. There, there are scenarios where uh, biological weapons uh, get out of hand. That's a really pretty plausible scenario where an arms race in space uh, leads to a kind of instability that creates an actual nuclear exchange. I, I think there are a lot of pretty close to actually existential risks to the planet. And to me, job one is making sure they don't happen. And, you know, uh, it has never been the case in the history of human affairs that the order brought by governance was entirely equitable, so far as I know. Once you get to any scale at all. No country. And so, and that's unfortunate. I'm not happy about it. But I, I think it would be a little, in light of that fact, it would be a little unrealistic to expect, like, fledgling global governance to be, you know, to mature with complete justice and equitability prevailing. Yeah, it's going to have to be that great powers exert disproportionate influence and get away with a disproportionate amount of shit. I'm sorry it's like that, but it beats blowing the whole fucking planet up. Right. I, I guess, you know, the the way humanity as a whole has confronted the pandemic has made me fear more for future threats. You know, this is something it should be pretty obvious that like this should have spurred international cooperation and the idea that, you know, every, you know, everyone um, is better off if we work together on this. And it seemed to spur the opposite in a lot of cases of more nationalism and blaming, blaming things on outsiders and so forth. Maybe, you know, the fact that Trump lost was a blow against that yeah. sort of thing. But like, this is, it's all, this is, comparable to the thought experiment of like what if aliens were coming to attack wouldn't you know wouldn't all the um nations of the world band together to fight against them because we're all you know we're all in this together right but it's kind of you know we had this global threat and it it hasn't united humanity it's yeah it's well let me people apart in in like new new insane ways yeah i mean let me let me say two things first of all the pandemic is actually a much more complex problem than climate change i believe it, there are there are many more actually zero sum dynamics, so it's like it's true that it's good for the U.S. for a bunch of other regions to get vaccinated. On the other hand, uh, there is there's a, a kind of self interested rationality behind wanting to get vaccinated first, and 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 vaccination is a zero sum game, and so long as there's a finite supply of vaccines and so on. There are a lot of actually genuine complications, but then you're right. I mean, you do get to the fact that ultimately um, you need wise uh, leaders, which is uh, who are, um, you know, wise and far-seeing leadership uh, that, that uh, commands respect within their countries fairly broadly and so on in a situation like this. We had the opposite in Trump, and who he just wanted to, he just wants to, use every crisis to maximize the amount of attention he gets, basically. And uh, 
So, and I'm not, and look, I'm not saying the Chinese leadership was by any means perfect in this either. Um, so, uh, I, uh, yeah, it, it's been, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not counseling optimism, but, but this is, but the fact that it's such a challenge and the fact that there's so much reason is pessimism for pessimism is the reason I'm saying you got to be realistic. I mean, uh, you know, the UN's not perfect. It, it, it does give disproportionate influence to uh, a certain number of powerful countries. Um, but right now, I think it's, it's one of the main vehicles we've got. And I just think for the United States to continue to disregard international law in as many ways as it disregards it, including disrespect, uh, for, in a certain sense, the Security Council, uh, is a is a is a big mistake. I, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm 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 not an optimistic person. I don't see grounds for optimism. <laughs> yes, I know it's that well. <laughs> that when you're when you're talking, you know, about existential threats, you uh you know you continue to uh tell people you 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 preach, and um that's. That's it. That's all I can do. Yeah. Just I, let me say, I wish. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I wish. I wish blogging heads had become the huge platform <laughs> with which to do it. But we've already had that conversation. Why don't you know? We've been we've been doing this for like an hour and thirteen minutes. Yeah. Why don't you say whatever you're going to say, and then let's get back to your show a little bit. Right. Yeah. The last thing I'll say. I. I mean, the a lesson. The older I get, the more the truth of it. You know, that I see more. Just like everything is really is really really complicated and so that's a good reason not to invade and occupy another country because it's so so complicated you're going to screw it up in a million ways you don't understand what's going on and any sort of simple answer it seems to me is uh or people who say well if we just did one two three everything would be fine that i'm less and less convinced by that and i may have been remembering some of the facts wrong about this but one possible example of this is you know, Israel uh, was did very well in initially in vaccinating its own citizens, and then people started criticizing it for not giving the vaccine to Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, and they caught a lot of flack from, you know, right-thinking uh, people uh, in the West saying, you know, the Israelis don't care, they want the Palestinians to die, blah, blah, blah. So then eventually, after they caught flack for a month or two, the they gave them a shipment, the Israelis gave the Palestinian Authority a shipment of vaccines and it turned out that oh they didn't want them they didn't want the zionist vaccines what if they were poisoned or something like this and then what eventually happened was that there was an article in the times about this you know once vaccines not coming from israel were distributed in the west bank the normal people in the, the everyday citizens of the west bank didn't want it either they had the same sort of objections to it that people in all across america had where they were like I, i'm feeling healthy i i've heard if you you know if you just drink a lot of water you you're you're not going to get this. I think it's a conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. So the simple answer of just like, you know, these people, like we need to blame these people. And if these people act right, then like good things will happen. It's like always so much more complicated than that. And um, maybe this is not the best metaphor, but yeah, it's just like easy answers are hard, are very hard to come by in general. And, and people, you know, this, the strangeness of human beings continues to astound and, and people believe all sorts of, unusual things and the internet enables them to spread their ideas and we can <laughs> see all the kooky things they believe in. And, uh, you know, I, so I throw up my hands and say, this is, you know, <laughs> at the first, the farce of this whole thing. We are, we are in agreement that the world is complicated.
Uh, I'm not throwing up my hands, but we are in agreement that the world is complicated. So let's uh, talk about your show. Yes. The um, so first of all, to to finish up one thought we started to express at the beginning. Yeah, the the we were convinced by uh, a guy who's actually kind of a YouTube consultant, uh, 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 an expert on YouTube strategy, uh, that it is win-win. That, for example. If we moved Glenn's show to a different YouTube channel, it would be good for us and for Glenn. Um, there's a logic behind that. Uh, the logic being that um, you want uh, a coherent... If you're going to have a channel and you want to get YouTube's algorithm to help you as much as possible to build your channel, the channel needs to be internally coherent. In other words, there would... Uh, there is some overlap maybe between, say, people attracted to my show and people attracted to Glenn's, but probably not like, you know, 50%, not like a ton. And that's what they mean by coherent. Um, they, uh, so, um, this guy sounded very confident that what you want to do is, uh, you know, in most circumstances, um, you want to, uh, you want to break things up. It's better for people to have their own YouTube channels. Um, and so uh, you had you had been kind of wanting to do that for some time, I think. Uh, but in any event, that's what we're doing. That will leave one regular Blogging Heads show uh, on the Blogging Heads channel on YouTube, which is DMZ. Um, it's funny. I mean, DMZ is in a way the the show that's truest to the spirit of the original Blogging Heads. It's a regular pair of people, Matt Lewis and Bill Sher, and and that wasn't so true of the early Blogging Heads. But it is left right kind of, uh, not far left or far right. Uh, yeah, and there's, but, there's um, people who question how you know is, is Matt Lewis <laughs> is he defected to the other side, et cetera. But yeah, that's yeah, that is close to the original. Well, there's, there's people who question Bill Sher. Yeah, there's plenty of people you know? who think he's a sellout. Also, it's it's funny how they. But but uh, anyway, it's fair to say one's left of center and one right of center, I believe. And uh, um, so we'll see if they you know if they want to um follow in your footsteps. In any event. All of you are on the Blogging Heads uh, podcast feed. Although we should say you have also the culturally determined podcast feed. People can subscribe to one or both in their podcast app. Blogging Heads feed includes my show, your show, Glenn's show, DMZ, um, and uh, and then your feed, of course, includes you. The so, but talk a little. I, I got to say, you, you've been very good. One thing you're very good at, I think, is spotting, uh, like, emerging, kind of soon-to-be-prominent people. Like, I hadn't heard of ContraPoints, who is now, I think, pretty well-known, until I saw her on your show. Um, and there have been a number of cases like that, where you, including back when you were working for us, and you would bring to my attention these people, and say, I think this, you know, so I, I think you've done a good job. That's one thing I would say uh, for your show. What are, what are the other things you like to highlight about your show or just about the nature or focus of it? Well, yeah, and I, I probably haven't done the best job selling the show in this episode because we didn't really talk about culture that much. But um, yeah, it's, you know, I it's essentially topics I'm interested in, but 
broadly in the in the culture space, but also you know sort of American culture or things like that. And um, yeah, I encourage people to check it out. You know, they can it's you can subscribe to it as an individual podcast on your podcast app, and now you can you're going to you can if you want to get it on YouTube. I guess you you can either look at the Blogging Heads homepage where it's going to continue to appear, or you can. Uh, subscribe to the channel and, and like I said I think the a link will be below and if you search culturally determined uh, on YouTube it, it should show up yeah it's interesting to think about like I, I'm just making this connection now but sort of the you know what we're doing is sort of we're, we're trying to play along with the algorithm in order to get more people to watch this stuff and but we're sort of bowing to the um the tribalized like uh, world because you know it, it used to be like blog is like a cacophony of voices and then it's narrowed and like now it's narrowing even more so that like the glenn people will subscribe to glenn and they'll get glenn and they love glenn and then they don't have to deal with Arya because they don't like Arya. and then the smaller number of Arya people will subscribe to Arya, but they're not going to get glenn um and so yeah it's so maybe that's somewhat unfortunate <laughs> and I, I, this is probably well the opposite but, but, of what, but. what a salesman would say you know how to promote your channel, but yeah, the, like the algorithms encourage a sort of tribalistic siloing, and it, which is somewhat the opposite of like original, you know, two thousand eight era blogging heads, which was like here's a bunch of interesting people with for, with diverse perspectives all arguing with each other, and it turns out that like both for the algorithm doesn't like that, and maybe a lot of the mass of the viewing audience doesn't particularly like that either. They like identifying with a personality. Like, Glenn is a strong personality. A lot of people like him and identify with him. We talked about this recently with your episode with the uh, Gurus, the Guru podcast. Yeah, it, it seems personal branding, identification with someone who has a strong perspective, that is, that's what succeeds right now for various, like, cultural and, te and technological reasons. Seems to. I mean, I would say, I mean, I try to have uh, people with a diversity of perspectives on my show. I've had, you know... Uh, I, I, I maintain that I'm, uh, one of the few shows that can say they've had both Brett Stevens and Max Blumenthal on. Yeah, you, um, yeah, you have a wide, a, a very wide range of people on, and so, I mean, probably wider than Joe Rogan's range, although you're, you're, you're not reaching into the Alex Jones area, but, um, but yeah, but then, yeah, it, yeah. it, just, it and, seems like and we're, you... we're swimming or we're like beating against the current or something. Uh, yeah, I mean, you do too. You have a diversity. Of people. I mean, yours isn't. Yours is often uh, cultural. For example, you've done now. I think two episodes on Philip Roth, which uh, people uh, Roth fans would be right to tune into you and not me. They won't be seeing a Philip Roth discussion on my show. Right. So and, you, and you do included a lot of that. That those conversations. It was debatey. We were. I was trying to. I didn't always agree with what the Roth scholar was saying. And so yeah, trying. I, I don't want to make my show like a Hallelujah chorus amen chorus or whatever the phrase is kind of thing of just everyone agreeing with each other um yeah so yeah so uh, you, you know your show as the name suggests largely about culture so it's it's not as political as mine although i get into non-political stuff too but but i want to say that yours winds you're also interested in the connection between culture and politics uh contra points is kind of a good example and in in pursuing that, you wind up with a diversity of uh, of perspectives on your show, and that's very commendable. And uh, 
You know, I think you're right. Uh, going tribal is is maybe an easier way to build a following. But uh, you know, we uh, we press on. Uh, we the lonely few determined to save the world. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I think it's 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 worthwhile. You know, I I don't work for blogging as anymore, but I did for you know a ten or so years, and I I still believe in the mission. But it's definitely going against the grain of the the way like well, I mean one of the things I'm interested in although the show is called culturally determined is sort of like how technology and material conditions sort of produce cultural effects and so like the things that the YouTube algorithm encourages end up flourishing and then you know and then people either through like their a conscious choice or an unconscious choice like they all sort of talk in the same way this I don't know if you've ever seen these videos where where people are like Hey YouTube, what's up? Blah, 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 blah. You know, they all sort of have they they've trained themselves at the same cadence that like somehow a combination of what people want and the algorithm rewards. And then so if you don't do that, then you're you know, you're like sabotaging yourself a little bit just in terms of popularity and so forth. So I don't know. Yeah. I'm familiar with that phenomenon. Sabotaging your popularity. <laughs> right. Oh, but okay. So there's the pitch, you know, culturally determined, check it out. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do is I, I was my very short victory lap, which is the last time we had a conversation, we talked about whether Biden would win and you were pessimistic and I was optimistic, obviously Biden won. And I actually really, no, wait, 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 back check, back check. I did not say there was less than a 50% right. chance of Biden winning. I said, the common perception that, which was pretty common at the time, that he was all but sure to win was wrong. And I was vindicated. It was a very close election. It wasn't a cakewalk. Thank you. So I will say what I was wrong, what I was right about was that Biden would win. What I was wrong about was I said, uh, Trump is not going to pick up. He didn't gain, he didn't like sway people over the past four years. Whereas he did, he got like 8 million more votes than he did before. But Biden got like 14 million more than Hillary Clinton did, so um, so there's that. But the other thing I, well, I re-listened to this episode that I forgot about is, uh, towards the end, I, this, we take this in September 2020, towards the end, I say, Bob, have you heard about this thing, QAnon? And, um, and you said, oh yeah, I think I've heard something about that, but I'm not quite sure. And I was saying, you know, um, this idea that there's sort of a fantasy world of politics where people are investigating and sort of enacting their own morality plays, I said, this is gonna, <laughs> I think this is sort of the future, Obviously, I didn't see, you know, the capital insurrection. January 6th. But but just the idea that this sort of alternate reality kind of thing, you know, Trump is Trump is going to be gone at some point. But the system that we've built for ourselves where, you know, small groups congregate and reinforce each other's ideas and start believing crazy things like, you know, people are like Democratic politicians are murdering small children to drink their blood. You know, this is this also seems like a portent of of what's to come so yeah and actually i had as i said i had someone on as talk i said you and on in 2017 or 18 i think and uh it's oh i forget his name he's a writer for the daily beast actually writing a book about QAnon right now and i went back and looked at that and the first comment on the blog site was this QAnon thing is a total joke why are you talking about this is a waste of time it's absurd and so there's well i hope you've tracked down that commenter and brought him or her to justice yeah so I, yeah i think i in some ways there there are things that i've weirdly have seen coming in at least certain respects or at least people i've talked to who have seen things coming that I, and i expose you know i talk to them and hopefully their knowledge yeah <laughs> now this so. is another example as i said if people want to know about emerging trends 
Tomorrow's news today, there's only one place to find it. That would be culturally determined. Yes. On available in the places I've said it's available, certainly including its new YouTube channel. Uh, by the time this airs, there will be one video up on your new YouTube channel, correct? I I think so, or at least people it will be live. It'll be live and people can can go to it. I think there will be a video up. I think we're gonna put your Monday video okay. up there and then and then this will air Tuesday. And the other thing is People who wish you well should make a habit of clicking the like button on videos even that they hate. I mean, it's seriously, yeah. kind of. Uh, uh, YouTube, you know, he's starting out. You, when you start your own channel, you don't have any followers. And, uh, you know, we need, to, we need to pitch in here. And, 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 yeah. and clicking like on, and, and, you know, after you subscribe, if you click like on some videos, that will bring the algorithm will bring more people to them. Some yeah, of them will click like and become subscribers. Often at the end of my episodes, I, I make a joke out of it because I'm not a self-promotion person. I'll say, like, don't like, subscribe, don't subscribe. You can do whatever you want. But yeah, I mean, there's a reason that those, you know, people who have a million followers are like, smash that subscribe button right now. Smash. Blah, 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 blah. You know, that, smash that, that like is that. how the algorithm works. So um, yeah, so subscribe, smash that like button, set alerts, What I don't know, whatever. Uh, check it out. Yeah. And, uh, rate and Rate and review. The right show, too, by the way. Yes. Uh, but mainly culturally determined. <laughs> yeah, and especially, um, you know, you can uh, subscribe to the individual culturally determined feed on your podcast app and uh, rate and review there. That all helps, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the last thing I'll plug is I started a Substack, although I've already, like, fallen way behind what I wanted to do, but it's called Links I Like. It's racw.substack.com or whatever. <laughs> and it's just a links compilation that I intended to put out weekly, but now is turning into more like every three weeks or four weeks. And there's weeks your Twitter, and there's your Twitter handle. People can follow you on Twitter. A-R-Y-E-H-C-W, Twitter. Yeah, I guess that's that's all I should plug right now. All right. Well, Godspeed, Arya Cohen Wade. Thanks, Bob. Uh, you've earned your wings, and we'll we'll see you down the road. Thanks. I appreciate it.